name of the one God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. So have you ever run into a situation where the truth was in your face and you missed it? The evidence is right there before you, and that moment of your life becomes a lesson in missing the point. Christians gather together and worship God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. As Anglicans, we confess the Nicene Creed on Sundays and the Apostles' Creed throughout the rest of the week. Baptized believers who come in faith and repentance to the Lord Jesus Christ receive the Eucharist regularly. At the same time, while these practices are Christian, many in the church today totally misunderstand or misidentify Jesus, not quite understanding who he is or highlighting how only those aspects of Jesus's identity that benefit them at the moment are the ones they embrace. Today's gospel reading begins with discussions of Jesus's identity. It shifts to managing expectations regarding his identity and requires those who call themselves Christ's disciples to identify with him. That identification must occur even in those ways that do not meet your expectations. Our text begins with Jesus asking his disciples, who do the crowds say that I am? This question has an entire background in the Lucan narrative that we must consider. So as far back as Luke chapter 1, we find the angel Gabriel appearing to the Virgin Mary, and he explains that she will bear a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the son of God. By the time Simeon sees the child in the temple, he recognizes Jesus as God's salvation prepared in the presence of all peoples. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of God's people, Israel. At Jesus' baptism, The voice from heaven declares, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. And in comes the genealogy, revealing a misunderstanding regarding Jesus' identity. Luke identifies him as the son, as was supposed, of Joseph. So who is Jesus? Well, the relationship between Jesus and Joseph becomes the first source of misidentifying him. When he is home in Nazareth at the synagogue, as recorded in Luke 4, Jesus reads from the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, noting that the scriptures have been fulfilled in the hearing of the people. The text was about the Messiah, the Christ of God. But the people asked, Is this not Joseph's son? Well, yes and no. 
In Luke 7, Jesus raises the son of a widow and the people declare, a great prophet has arisen among us. And while Jesus is a prophet, he is far more than just a prophet. Then earlier in this chapter, chapter 9, people assert that John had been raised from the dead. Others were saying that Elijah had appeared. Still others declared that one of the prophets of old had risen. I mean, here's, here's the kicker. You back up to Luke chapter 4, and demons have gotten Jesus' identity right. Oh, the Son of God. And Jesus is like, shut your mouth and come out of it. But the crowds are getting it wrong time and time again. Herod was closer than most of the people. He was like, well, John, I beheaded, but who is this? As after the disciples have told Jesus about the gossip and rumors circulating throughout the area, Jesus turns the question toward them. But who do you say that I am? And Peter speaks for the group and answers the Christ of God. Well, good answer, Peter. He gives the correct answer, but it almost seems as if Peter gives the proverbial Sunday school answer. So I grew up in Sunday school my entire life, and as a kid, the answer to everything was, well, Jesus. Well, what is this? Jesus. I remember hearing a story about a minister in a church going into a children's Sunday school class, and he's, he's well, what has, you know, a fluffy tail and two long ears and, you know, hops around? And one kid said, well, that sounds a lot like a bunny rabbit, but I know the answer is supposed to be Jesus. And Peter has given the right answer. And I'm not trying to be mean, but when I say this, here's what happens in the chapter just before this, in chapter 8, when Jesus calms the storm. The disciples are in the boat and they are asking one another, who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water and they obey him? It demonstrates they don't really have a full picture of who Jesus is, but I know the right answer is supposed to be the Christ, so I'm going to say it. So Peter gives the correct answer, but does he know what it means? The following verses reveal that Christ does not always meet your expectations. I mean, the Jewish people had suffered centuries of oppression. Now they are under the thumb of Rome, but the Christ of God has come. So what were the general expectations regarding the Christ? Well, he was going to come and destroy all the pesky Romans who didn't think like the Jews, act like the Jews, talk like the Jews, and definitely did not eat like the Jews. The disciples know that they have the ultimate secret weapon. I mean, think about it. Jesus is the gauntlet with all the infinity stones, and with a snap of his finger, he can wipe out everybody who is not like them. And with that, Jesus is like, wait, not so fast. Don't tell anybody who I am. And by the way, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Wait, a Christ who dies? 
So who wrote this story? Well, at least Jesus gives a spoiler and lets them know that he will rise again on the third day. But this is where the tables turn for those who say they follow Jesus. You see, the Christian life is not only about confession, but it is about taking up your cross and following Jesus. Peter has confessed Jesus as the Christ, and Jesus is like, but wait, there's more. Notice what Jesus says in verse 23. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Within the current cultural context, this is not what we hear people saying when we want people to become a follower of Jesus. Deny yourself. Wait, what? You have to recognize that it's not about you. Take up this instrument of death and now follow Jesus. Who just told you that he will die? This is not what people typically hear. But it is much better to be open and honest with people than lying to them or leaving out the truth in the hopes that they will follow Jesus and then stick it out when they find out what's really going on. Jesus puts all the chips on the table. He explains, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? So which do you want? Do you want the world or do you want your soul? Because right now you can't have both. In the age to come, sure, but not now. So which one is it? In Luke chapter 4, you find the story of the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. And in that narrative, Jesus rejects receiving all the world's kingdoms from Satan. So if you're having difficulty choosing between the world and your soul, be like Jesus. Maybe Christians today need to reject the allure of worldly kingdoms in their practice of following Jesus. You see, following Jesus means that you will be rejected. Religious people who lack true religion will reject you. People with political power will reject you. Those either fighting for or holding on to political power, whether they are religious or not, will reject you. Look back at verse 22 for a moment. Who rejects Jesus? The elders and chief priests and scribes reject him. And how does Jesus die? He dies on a cross at the hands of Rome, the political power of his day. In Luke chapters 22 and 23, we see the elders of the people, the chief priests and the scribes, the religious people, hand Jesus over to Pilate, the one with political power. Christians should therefore be cautious when they see religious people, especially religious leaders, in partnership with those holding political power. Because you are not above the one you call your master. Therefore, even as Christ was rejected, he calls you to embrace the rejection. Because it is a sign that you are following Jesus. The temptation of acceptance can be powerful, though. So Jesus tells his disciples, 
For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. The language that Jesus uses here has traditionally been associated with judgment at the end of time. This highlights the reality that if you are ashamed of Jesus or of his teaching, denying him by either word or deed to be accepted by those in power, he, as the ultimate judge, will deal in divine reciprocity and reject you. Is your soul worth the political power of a kingdom that is destined to fall? I'm reminded of Shakespeare's Richard III, where Richard runs around on the battlefield crying, a horse, a horse, my kingdom for a horse. And I oftentimes wonder if people in the church are running around in this present age crying, my soul, my soul, a kingdom for my soul. Jesus concludes by telling his disciples There are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. As a follower of Jesus, do you understand that Christ and his kingdom do not necessarily meet your expectations in this age? The disciples did not get it. Because we see later in chapter 9, when the Samaritans reject Jesus, James and John respond by asking, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? I'm like, as if you had that authority, but okay. (laughs) And Jesus rebukes them. But I can't tell you how many times I have heard of people in churches desiring similar things for those who hold different views than they Instead, in a world where the political powers were against them, Jesus tells his disciples, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you, heal the sick in it, and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, Go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. When you live as kingdom citizens, you must recognize that some will accept and others will reject. In either circumstance, visible signs of the kingdom have been made manifest. Later in Luke, Jesus is accused of casting out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. People still don't recognize Jesus. He was doing good and healing people. And Jesus challenges his accusers and explains that if it is by the finger of God that he casts out demons, that the kingdom of God has come upon them. The disciples saw the kingdom of God because where Christ is at work, through the power of the Holy Spirit, working in and through people, the kingdom of God is being declared by both word and deed. 
Therefore, you are responsible for living in the fullness of God's kingdom in this age. As you continue to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. May you fully participate in the kingdom of God, aligning your attitudes and actions with his will, seeking the increase of true religion and the fruit of good works. Amen.